Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello. It was well after midnight on a muggy Shanghai September evening in 2020 when Michael Smith, the Australian Financial Review's China correspondent, was awoken by the secret police banging on his door. It would mark the abrupt end of Australian journalism on the ground in China since the diplomatic ties were established in 1972. Speaking from his home in Sydney, Mike talks to me about his evacuation from China and his recently released book, The Last Correspondent. So Mike Smith, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Look, it's an honor to have you here today, considering the media frenzy following your hasty exit from Shanghai last year. Let's get to your sudden exit from China in a few minutes, because first I want to talk about your book, The Last Correspondent, which I must say was a pleasure to read. When I picked it up, I was expecting a heavy Sino-Australian political book, when in fact, it's your journey as a correspondent in Asia since 1993. Naturally, it's fascinating, but without downplaying the importance of your message, it's also very charming. Yeah, th thanks, Peter. I think I wanted to, um, you know, there's a lot of very sort of dry books out there about Chinese politics and the Chinese economy. And I think I sort of wanted to give readers a bit of a picture of what life was like on the ground in, in China. Um, and, you know, China's sort of become... Uh, part of everyone's lives and particularly here in Australia there's huge amounts of interest in China but I don't think people you know who haven't lived in China really understand what it's like there so I sort of wanted to add a bit of colour and emotion and and also I was sort of wanted to tell the story of the, of the Chinese people who sort of you know we sort of forget about them in all the media coverage of China and you know I did a lot of interviews with, with my friends and talked about people I, I met along the way so I thought it was really important to get their stories uh, into the book as well. And Mike, your, descrip your description of Hong Kong back in the 1990s was a delight and resonated for all the obvious reasons. I think for anyone who arrived on the shores of Hong Kong in the early 1990s, they'll love that chapter about your early experience in the city. And of course, uh, talking about China, the way your prose illustrates Shanghai's French concession makes me want to jump on a plane and head right now to the street of eternal happiness. Oh, that's great, because everyone's sort of terrified of uh, China at the moment. So look, I'm really glad that's what you got out of the book, because, you know, as you know, it's such a, you know, it's such an amazing country. And, um, you know, there's so much diversity there and, and so much um, you know, to, to attract you to a place like that. And, you know, as you well know, you know, you've been in Hong Kong for years and, you know, flying into Hong Kong when you're a 23 year old and I'd come straight from Hobart, Tasmania, you know, this tiny, tiny uh, city. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I landed a job in Hong Kong somehow, jumped on a plane and I'm flying down into the old uh, Kai Tak Airport and, you know, just wondering what the hell have I got myself into and it's, you know, it's so evocative when you get off the plane at night and there's all the smells of Asia and you're sort of driving up towards the peak and 
Um, you know, so those early months in Hong Kong were sort of very, very exciting. Um, and then, of course, as a journalist, it was all, you know, overlaid by, you know, this huge political event looming on the, on the calendar, the 1997 handover. So, you know, very exciting covering all the negotiations and all the politics uh, leading up to that. And, you know, also, I think in those early days, I got my first introduction to, to mainland China as well. You'd go sort of on, on sort of little holidays across the border and sort of experience China in those sort of very early years of its sort of economic boom and um, you know things were still uh, really developing and you know I remember just lining up for four hours trying to buy a train ticket in in a, in a city in China and you know and it's just changed so dramatically in just a couple of short decades. Uh, did you enjoy writing the book after all it's steeped in memories? Yeah I really loved it it was sort of a cathartic experience in a way because the book obviously came about because when we were evacuated uh, from China in September last year, there was a you know it was in the huge story in the global media, a lot of headlines, and and obviously the publishing companies were were interested in that story. But for me, uh, I'd always wa wanted to write a book about China, and um, it was a great chance to tell uh, this story about you know all, all my years uh, in the place. And you know I, I had a very stressful couple of months when I first landed back in Sydney, sort of plucked out of my home in Shanghai and um, so I went off to Tasmania which is where I grew up and um, you know parked myself at a friend's holiday place and just sat there for, for 10 weeks and and wrote and you know go go for you know breaks go for walks on the beach and and it was really hard work but it was a very cathartic experience and it was great to get all those memories out and and particularly I had a lot of fun with the whole you know I found some old diaries about my years in Hong Kong and plowed through them. And so that, that was really a lot of fun. And you became the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review or the AFR in 2018. Um, gosh, you certainly put in the mileage traveling around China, meeting people from all walks of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've interviewed Jack Ma, which I must say was one of the more surreal chapters in the book. You've wined and dined with, in your words, crazy rich Asians. You've broken bread with migrant workers and political firebrands. And now, just like that, as we speak, you are gone. There are no more Australian correspondents on the ground in China. Um, the first time since 1970. So Mike, tell us about the events on that September night. And more importantly, how did it get to this? Yeah, no, that was a great description, Peter. And I'm sort of glad now I did cram a lot into those sort of three years I, I had been a correspondent based in Shanghai. But look, it all started um, in sort of August last year and Australia-China relations have, have been very bad now for, for a few years, but it really accelerated after the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, there's a lot of dip diplomatic tensions, but but I never felt unsafe there. I always thought as a journalist that the worst thing that could happen to me was that I'd, you know, um, be, be deported or my visa would be revoked. Um, and sort of in December last year, an Australian Chinese journalist named Chung Lei was, uh, she's a very prominent TV anchor in China. She, she was detained. She's now been charged with national security crimes. We don't know exactly what she's meant to have done. Um, so when word got out she'd been detained, uh, the Australian government all of a sudden uh, told myself and a, another journalist named Bill Bertels, who, who works for the ABC, our national broadcaster, they, they rang our bosses and said, you've got to get your journalists out of China, they're not safe. 
Um, so I happened to be in Beijing. I, I went to the embassy. We had a few meetings and we were very confused. We kept saying, well, why do we have to leave? And they wouldn't tell us why. They just said, you're no longer safe. Uh, they've already detained two Canadians 18 months earlier and now this other Australian journalist. So it took a couple of days before I agreed to leave. You know, the, the, uh, the ambassador was getting a little bit anxious. So I packed my bags um, and booked a ticket for the next day. And I was preparing to leave uh, Shanghai the next day. I didn't still really didn't believe I was unsafe and, and uh, even my partner wasn't going to leave then. And so I went to bed that night and then um, after midnight, I was fast asleep. There was a knock at the door. I didn't know what was going on. Staggered downstairs in my boxer shorts and um, there's these seven uniformed police on my, my doorstep. And it turns out they were from, some of them from, were from the Ministry of State Security. So that's pretty terrifying stuff in China and you know, for a minute there, I thought they were going to take me away and, and lock me up, which, which didn't happen. But, but quite alarmingly, they said I was a person of interest in a national uh, security investigation and uh, there was an exit ban on me and I couldn't leave China. I mean, normally foreigners who fall foul of the government get chucked out of a country. I think they call it a, a PI or a prohibited immigrant. Unusually, you were quite the opposite. You were issued an exit ban. What went through your head? I mean, the two Canadian businessmen, Michael Kovrick and Michael Spaver, who were picked up in 2018, couldn't have been far from your mind. Not at all. And look, it was absolutely terrifying because this is, had never happened to um, foreign, foreign journalists before. I mean, there's a lot of foreigners who have had exit bans put on them because they might have been involved in some kind of financial crime or something. Um, so I was quite scared and then and then the very strange thing was I, I rang the other journalist Bill up in Beijing and he'd had the exact same experience so then we realized this is very political we were the only two uh, journalists left in China at the time working for Australian media outlets and the fact they had targeted both of us we then realized look this is very political this is China having a go at Australia uh, it certainly wasn't anything to do with anything I'd written or, or anything I investigated um, so that was very alarming. We, we just didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, we did find out, we didn't find this out until, you know, quite a few weeks later, but back in Australia in June, our intelligence agency, which is called ASIO, they had raided the homes of four Chinese journalists in Sydney. And, um, you know, I think they had a pretty unpleasant experience. So it turns out uh, that was the trigger for what happened to us. It was this sort of tit for tat thing. It's like, you rough up our journalists, we're gonna rough up yours. But um, of course, no one told us that at the time. Um, so after they came to the house, delivered this news, um, they, they left after about 15 minutes and, and you know, it was only then I thought, well, I'm not going to prison tonight, uh, thank God. Um, but I knew I was in sort of a huge amount of trouble. So, you know, obviously rang, rang the embassy, uh, went straight to the consulate first thing the next morning. And that's when they made this sort of very dramatic decision to put both of us under diplomatic protection. And, you know, this doesn't happen very often. So they were, they were very concerned about our safety. And, and I was whisked off to the consul general's house in Shanghai, where we sort of had to hide out for sort of five days, Julian Assange style. I mean, you, you say you were a pawn in a much bigger tit-for-tat game. So does that mean that perhaps Australia started all of this? Yeah, it's very difficult to say. I mean, China-Australia relations have been very rocky since about 2000. And 
2017, China was sort of very unhappy with uh, the Australian uh, government had introduced sort of some foreign interference laws, which which were targeting concerns about you know Chinese politicians and political donations and and what have you. And we we're also one of the first uh, countries to to ban Huawei from our 5G telecommunications network. So China was already quite upset with Australia. Um, and then in April last year, our, our government, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister. Um, decided to call out China on coronavirus and, and he made this sort of call for an international inquiry into the origins of coronavirus, which, which as you know, in China is a very sensitive topic. So, so Beijing was extremely unhappy uh, with Australia. Um, since then, uh, China's uh, put, a, put a lot of uh, tariffs and restrictions on, on sort of major Australian exports such as coal and wine. So that they've retaliated in that way. So things have really been disintegrating. Um, and I think Australia's sort of, you know, probably suffered China's wrath more than, more than any other country. We were a very easy target. We rely on China uh, very heavily economically, but we're also one of the countries that are the most critical of China. So, so China can argue, well, you know, why are you out there criticizing your biggest customer all the time? We, you know, we've got a right to give you a hard time. So, you know, it's hard to say who, whose fault is it, um, but, but things are really messy and um, the diplomatic relationship, you know, doesn't look like it's going to get any better soon. Absolutely. And it must have been pretty scary sitting in the embassy wondering what was going to happen because you actually weren't safe until you were on that aeroplane. But possibly what I found in the book was more chilling and something you found out much later was that uh, you had been under surveillance for some time. And also your friends in China had received strange phone calls from shady authorities in the middle of the night asking about you. That's right. I, I didn't find this out until some months later, but a, a couple of Chinese nationals I, I knew, they weren't close friends, but they were acquaintances. They'd been contacted by the Ministry of State Security, who just sort of asked a lot of questions about me. You know, how did they know me? What, what was I like? And then we also, I also found out that, um, you know, there'd been a car in the laneway where I lived and the house had been under surveillance. So that's sort of pretty creepy stuff. And it was sort of evidence that, that they were sort of mounting a case uh, against me sort of way back in July. So sort of a month or so uh, before this actually happened. So, so that was pretty, pretty disturbing. And, and then the situation in the embassy was quite bizarre as well. I mean, I think in the end we were there for sort of four days um, the embassy or the consul general's house is technically prevent, um, protected under the Vienna Convention. So, so the Chinese authorities really shouldn't come barging in there and take us out. But, but the diplomats said, look, we don't really know what's going to happen here. They, they actually still might. Um, so it was sort of a precarious position. And then we were sitting there going, well, what's going to happen? Are we going to be in here for months? Um, are we ever going to be able to get out? Um, and in the end, we were fairly lucky. The Australian government uh, at a very, very senior levels, negotiated a deal with China uh, where we could actually leave the country. Uh, but we had to submit, we had to agree to submit to an interview with the Ministry of State Security before we left. And again, that was risky because once we left the Consul General's residence to go and do the interview, we we didn't know whether we were going to be taken away or not. But we we decided in the end we had no other choice. And the fact that this agreement had been made at quite high diplomatic levels made us think, well, you know, China doesn't, um, China will hopefully not renege on that agreement and, and let us out of the country. 
And so you were whittled away to the airport where you were met by other diplomats. Um, you weren't sure you were going to get through until you heard that clunk <laughs> in your passport. Yes, that's right. It was a really dramatic day because, um, you know, I had to leave the Consul General's house, go off to this interview with the Ministry of State Security, which was in a high rise hotel room. And uh, that was that was sort of the interview was quite straightforward in the end, but that was a bit nerve wracking. And then finished that, went downstairs, the Consul General's there with his car and drove off to the airport. And and then we met, you know, the other journalist, Bill Birdles, and our partners are there. And there's sort of a whole you know, group of diplomats looking after us and, you know, various COVID forms to fill out and and um, Australia had to lift, um, they have restrictions on, on people coming into Australia because of COVID and they had to lift that cap for us. So there are all these bureaucratic hurdles. So it was pretty, pretty nerve wracking. And then, yeah, as you said, walk through uh, customs and they clanked the stamp down and that was sort of kind of like, phew, I think we're almost there. Uh, but it wasn't really until we got on the plane and the door closed that I thought, I think, think we're gonna be okay now. And, and we weren't allowed to tell anyone because we didn't want the story to, to leak out into the Australian media that would have made the negotiations far more complex. So, you know, I, I couldn't ring my dad until I was actually on the plane and I had to ring him and say, look, hey, this is really weird. I'm about to come home. Don't panic, everything's okay. And, and then we took off. And, um, and the worst thing was though, the plane didn't have any alcohol aboard. We couldn't even have a beer, which we really needed at the time. So you were home for Christmas a little earlier that year. Now, I think this is very important. You make it abundantly clear throughout the book that this is not about demonizing the Chinese people. One gets the feeling that throughout the book, there's a great sense of respect for the man in the street. In fact, it's that charming attitude that I feel made this such an enjoyable read. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you got that got that out of it because I mean I think anyone who's lived in in China, you know, it can be a frustrating uh, place to live in some sometimes. But the people are just wonderful once you once you get to know them. And uh, and I travelled all over the country, and you know sometimes people were nervous about speaking to journalists, but generally people were were pretty open. They had a great sense of humour and. You know, I made a lot of really good friends in China, Chinese nationals, um, and they're just extraordinary people in a way because they've been through so much in their lives. And, and um, you know, the, the differences between the generations is just so dramatic. You know, someone in their 50s or 60s lived through the cultural revolution and famine and all kinds of hardship. And then, you know, someone in their 20s and 30s is, um, you know, might be living in a really expensive high-rise apartment in Shanghai and and buying designer handbags and so everyone's got a really unique story to tell and you know I met lots of great entrepreneurs who who worked really hard and, and all sort of sorts of quirky people. I mean politics and COVID have tarnished the image of the Chinese people from the western viewpoints and in particular Australia to paraphrase mm. you it cannot be ignored that the west has fallen out of the Chinese cash cow businesses are waking up to the risks from where we are sitting, can we be forgiven for thinking China is a nation that is very thin-skinned and incapable of criticism? One seemingly innocuous remark from a sports star or a pop star can generate an, a barrage of hatred online and often the end of that person's career. Yeah, no, I think it has become 
quite thin-skinned and and particularly the government that the communist party is is very thin-skinned they they won't tolerate any kind of western criticism um and i think this has sort of accelerated since since the pandemic because you know as you know china emerged from the outbreak you know a lot quicker than than many western countries and you've got the, you know, the us was in a complete mess and from where many people in china sit you know democracy is a bit a bit of a basket case um, and then you've sort of got all these Western countries sort of lecturing you about how, how you run things in your country. And I think China's reached this position, particularly under Xi Jinping, where it's become very confident and very emboldened and sort of no longer willing to play second fiddle to the West and, and certainly not the United States. So its tolerance for the criticism, you know, has become very low. But of course, this is um, it's not really helping China. I mean, the whole wolf warrior diplomacy thing's just just insane. I mean, it's sort of getting a lot of countries offside and and I really don't know where this is going and you know I guess the Chinese people are sort of quite very proud of their their nation and they've got a good reason to be and and I think you know there's that sense that you know China's been a bit downtrodden for a for a century or two but but now it's China's time to shine um but I had a couple of sort of strange experiences during COVID where um you know I think you know, after by around April, after China recovered, there are all these stories circulating that the US Army brought COVID into Wuhan. So there's a lot of disinformation around and, and propaganda. And I mean, I was at a dinner party once, which I write about in the book, and, you know, there's very well educated, refined uh, Chinese guy sitting next to me, he got really angry when I said something about you know the virus coming from Wuhan and he told me it had been brought in by the US Army and he was completely adamant that that was the truth and got very very angry about it and it was a very sort of tense situation so I think that it's a bit of a reflection of how many people in China feel at the moment. Yeah absolutely but is China's wolf diplomacy working? I mean you spoke of an incident in the book where a Chinese diplomat said Australia is like a naughty child and needs a good smack how did that go down in Canberra? <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, I think it's sort of, I, I really don't know who this is meant to be helping because, you know, China and the diplomats make comments like that. And then everyone in Canberra gets annoyed. And I mean, our government does a lot of, is doing a lot of chest thumping at the moment. And, um, and I mean, we've even had politicians in, in recent weeks talking about, you know, the possibility of going to war with China, which is, of course is absolutely insane. I mean, Australia's not a very powerful country. We, we really don't want to be going down that path. But, um, you know, and I think China's got a lot of countries offside and, and the US in particular, and, and it all filters down through to public opinion. And unfortunately, you know, Australia's a lot of, there's been a lot of xenophobia in Australia since, since the pandemic. And I've got Chinese friends who have, you know, been abused on the street and what have you. And, you know, this, this isn't a good situation. So in a way, China's uh, not doing itself any favours. I mean, surely there's other ways it can be assertive without sort of engaging in this sort of slanging match on, on social media. Mm, indeed. But let's move away from mainland China for a moment and discuss Hong Kong. You see Hong Kong as your second home and you dedicated several chapters to the upheavals in the past four years. Indeed, you witnessed them firsthand. What are your thoughts on the future of the city? Yeah, I mean, I've got a huge amount of affection for Hong Kong because I, I went there when I was quite young. I, I met my 
partner of 27 years there and and you know he's a he's a Hong Kong national always had a lot of friends there so always a huge amount of affection for the place and um and it was just fascinating in you know it was around June or July in 2019 flying down there uh when those first heated protests really started and and the, the first rounds of tear gas were being fired on the streets and it was you know and as I'm sure it was the same for you it was just bizarre you're you're in central and in Hong Kong and you know Hong Kong's one of the safest places in the world that I've ever known and suddenly people are fleeing the police and there's tear gas and there's rubber bullets and you sort of think how how is this happening I mean this is Hong Kong this is this is crazy so um and it was a very um you know, it was a bit of a crazy six months covering those protests. I mean, I'd fly down almost every weekend or every second weekend and, and then sort of watching it turn from, um, you know, turn from sort of the mood just really changed over a few months and sort of by October 2019, it just become really nasty and, and sort of both the police and, and the protesters uh, were behaving badly. And, um, you know, there was you know, so much tension in the air and, and, you know, people, you know, people did die. And um, so it was all, all became quite disturbing. And then of course, you know, last year, the national, national security laws were, were implemented and, you know, the protests seemed to have been permanently quashed and, and Hong Kong's returned to some degree of stability, but uh, I'm not quite sure what the cost is. And I haven't been able to go to Hong Kong, um, you know, for, for a year or so because, the borders have been closed so I'm not exactly sure what the sentiment is on the ground but it sort of feels like to me that the place has really changed it, it's never going to be the big vibrant international city that, that that it once was. Yeah the American Chamber of Commerce did a survey which came out yesterday and I think they said that 40% of the people they had surveyed want to leave the territory. But listen, Mike, we're running out of time. So let's go back to the Sino-Australian debate. Uh, where does Australia go from here? I think it's important to point out China accounted for some 48% of exports in 2018. Canberra talks about finding new markets, which is well and good, but it's not that simple, is it? I mean, one recent tabloid headline said, Australia would die a slow and lingering death as the two nations have fallen out over exports and COVID probes. That's right. Look, I don't know if a lot of people in Australia realise quite how dependent we are economically, you know, on, on China. And the public sentiment here and the political sentiment is, is very anti-China. And there's a lot of talk about sort of uh, weaning ourselves off, off our economics reliance on China and finding new markets. But, but I mean, all the, the um, businessmen I speak to and the exporters I speak to, I mean, they all privately say, look, it's, it's just a nightmare. There, there is no other market uh, that can be an alternative to China. There is just nowhere big enough. India is sort of not, not going to cut it. Um, so I think our companies here are, are very alarmed about what's going on. Uh, the same time that the Morrison government here seems to be sort of on this collision course with China, I mean, the, the rhetoric coming out of Canberra is sort of sort of very aggressive. And then, of course, China's got zero time for us. You know, our, our ministers can't get um, get on the phone with anyone senior in China anymore. So it sort of feels like I just don't know where this is is heading. And um, it's got a way to play out. There's a Chinese company uh, has a lease on a important strategic asset in, in Australia, the port of Darwin. And, and now our government's talking about tearing up that lease. So if, if that happens, 
you know, relations are sort of going to disintegrate further. So, you know, we're just not quite sure uh, where this is all heading at the moment. I mean, there's some very troubling headlines out there. I mean, there's one I read this week about a nuclear war threat. It said, Australia has no idea how dangerous the situation has become. Uh, this was from a, an Australian defence expert. That's right. And, you know, and then, I mean, the editor of the Global Times published a piece saying, well, China could fire long-range missiles at Australia. And, and this is obviously all rhetoric at the moment. You know, something like this is certainly isn't about to happen. But um, I just don't know why our politicians are, are talking like this. There's, there's a lot of talk about a possible conflict in Taiwan and what Australia's role would be there if, if you know, the US went in to defend Taiwan. And I mean, but the crazy thing is there is no imminent sign that China's about to do anything with, with Taiwan. I think if it was, we'd, we'd all know about it. So, um, you know, and, and there's an argument, this is sort of being driven by domestic politics and, and the government here want, want to fight a khaki election and, and distract everyone from, from other problems in Australia, such as how we're handling, mm. you know, our vaccine rollout, et cetera. So, you know, it, it, it seems to be, there's some dangerous talk going on at the moment and um, hopefully, hopefully things will die down soon. Mm, well, China's here to stay. Um, so we're just going to have to learn to live with China, I think. Um, it's a sobering thought um, and perhaps one we should end up on. But before we do go, let me reiterate your book, The Last Correspondent, is not all about doom and gloom and politics. It's actually fabulous, funny, and yes, a worrying read, which I urge everyone to go out and buy. Um, but last but not least, Mike, what happened to your dog? You weren't <laughs> able to bring your dog back to Australia, were you? Oh, well, that's the biggest tragedy out of all this for me personally is our, you know, our poor dog Huey is stuck in Shanghai still. So obviously we left so quickly and dramatically, you, you just can't take your dog with you. And um, because of coronavirus, there, there's hardly any flights uh, leaving the country and the, the airlines that are flying up just aren't taking pets. So we just can't get our poor old dog out. Um, he's been very well looked after by, by a nice Australian couple. And um we hope to be reunited with him later this year, but so so fingers crossed. Uh, Mike Smith, it's been fascinating and an absolute pleasure catching up. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. I really enjoyed it. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.